Hello, everyone. We're back again today with today's episode of Commitment Matters. Part two of our wonderful guest, David Friend, is here for you today. Now, really, if you didn't have a chance to listen to part one, stop here, go back, listen to that one first. So you'll be ready to pick up here as the conversation wove its way around to a discussion of the disclosure of title insurance premiums and the, you can say goofy if you want to, the way they're disclosed to consumers on the LE and CD. I think you'll find that once the CFPB had a requirement to harmonize RESPA and TILA, there was little else they could do given the way title products have traditionally been priced. And honestly, I'm going to go on record here and say that it was also true that we didn't have to maintain our same legacy pricing models in the new world. It would have been a lot of work, and in many states required lots of lobbying to change it. But the way we price our products is not not up to us, at least to some degree. But it was a familiar pricing apparatus, and unfortunately, it's also one that didn't quite fit with the Bureau's directive from Congress. Our conversation doesn't stop there, though. You might also be interested in hearing David's impression of attorney opinion letters and his recollections from the closing table. Now, heck, I'll quit laying the groundwork and instead just say, please enjoy part two of my conversation with our friend, David Friend. Now there's one bone, you know, my industry still has to pick with you. And I honestly, uh, <laughs> oh, what possibly could that be? I mean, the damn title insurance calculations. And my fear is, David, that at your wake, surely we wouldn't do it at your funeral, but maybe at your wake, we might show up and say, but he didn't understand how title insurance is priced. I know that you do. I'd like for you to talk through this, please, where no one can interrupt you, including me. So what the title insurance calculation came down to is we talked about it a little bit earlier. And that is there was the overarching battle as to, okay, what is the loan estimate? What is the closing disclosure? And there was an effort to try to make those amounts guaranteed at the time of the loan estimate. And in order to kind of come to some sort of, uh, you know, understanding between people that wanted to make it guaranteed versus people who said, from a practical standpoint, that's very difficult to do, but we could at least make the numbers more reliable to consumers, right? Something that you can more reasonably say, okay, it might not be to the penny, but it is giving me a good idea. Things are going to change. And when things change, these numbers will change, but at least there's a basis. So in order to do that, you had to have tolerance levels that worked. Tolerance levels that you could set up a regime where if there was a change, if there was something that happened, you could reset the tolerances, redisclose, let the consumer know what has changed, and not delay closings, right? That was the thing that everybody was concerned about is that, well, this is going to lead to delays in closing. And after being in the industry, that is just not a place that you want to be ever. So there was a, a trying to try to figure out a way where you have categories of lender required charges that can be within a particular tolerance level. And of course, the debate evolved into zero versus 10 versus, you know, it's an ongoing debate. So by doing this, when you look at the title insurance calculation and what we did at the Bureau is, and you can read this in TRID if you really, really want to 
get wonky. <laughs> but what we did is we tried to get as many different ways the title insurance is calculated across the United States. Try to figure out, okay, well, how's it done everywhere? And it's more complicated than anybody thought. I think at the end, we came up with like four or five different ways that it was done. Yeah, with a few curly cues that made it look like a few more than that. But basically, yeah. Right. And we were looking for patterns. Like, is there a particular state where the one is prevalent and not? And that disappeared pretty quickly once we started Don't to scratch the in, surface. David. We like to do it differently. Don't fence us in. I know. That's fine. The problem for us, though, at the Bureau, was that these numbers could change even at closing. So depending on the type of title insurance calculation that was used to come up with the lender's policy and the owner's policy, you could have situations where the tolerance regime came down to, okay, if you're going to redisclose, you've got to redisclose within a particular time frame, right? And so three days was kind of what it lent itself to. If you have something that changes at the settlement table and changes the calculations of what the lender required charges were, then what you're going to be doing is you're going to be delaying closings, right? In order to get the tolerances to be reset, it's nobody's fault that the consumer decided to decline an owner's policy, right? right. But what that does is whatever was disclosed to the lender's policy suddenly changes quite a bit. And in some jurisdictions that can be thousands of dollars and could even implicate APR tolerances in some cases. Even though some of these charges might not be part of the APR, you had a tolerance regime that it's a 10% charge for services you could shop for. And so these numbers in some jurisdictions can be large enough where that is in play just by a consumer declining title insurance. And that's fun. Where you're at the table, they decline the insurance or a couple of days before, go back and tell your lender, I just threw off your <laughs> APR tolerances. Oops. Tell the lender. Also tell your real estate agent that's sitting at the table. Yeah, they're closer to you and they can cut you. <laughs> yeah. When I was doing closings, I never remember loan. I remember maybe one or two loan officers showing up at the table. Real estate agents, they were always there, always ready for their check to be cut. Yep. Exactly. So it's something where the lender's not making these choices. The lender's not making these changes. The consumer's making the changes, but you've got consequences where all of the numbers could be shuffling at any point. So that completely destabilizes the whole idea of having a disclosure regime where the consumer's informed of the changes. And that was not something that was on the table at the time to change. So we were looking for solutions. And some of the things that we were doing as part of the TRID project itself was looking at all of the mortgage disclosures that are in the stack. I probably don't have to tell this to everybody, but the stack keeps on getting thicker and thicker and thicker. I know. We used to have a dream of whacking it. Yes, yes. No, I don't even except, hear anybody say that anymore. Well, it's because we were looking at it at the Bureau to try to consolidate as many disclosures as we could and do as few pages as we could. Right. The only problem is that when you actually crack open the books and you start kind of tracing, okay, well, this disclosure is from this and this disclosure is from that, there are approximately 10 pages in any stack of mortgage documents, 10 actual physical pages that are linked to federal law and federal requirements. Correct. And the rest are by virtue of? The rest are state laws, local laws, and lenders and secondary market folks 
who want particular disclosures to be in there to protect themselves down the road. There's nothing illegitimate about that. It's just that's where the source is. And so when people say, oh, we're going to reduce it, it's like, well, we've got 10 pages we can work with. We can get that down to six. That's our contribution. So we can spend even more money on that. But essentially, that's where you kind of focus things. And to bring this back to title insurance when we were talking, so we were looking as many things as we could. And some of the things we were doing is we were looking at the state level disclosures to try to figure out, okay, well, you know, what do the states do? You know, is there any overlap? Is there anything that we can do to kind of figure out a better way to streamline it? And some of the disclosures related to title insurance. And some of those disclosures included requirements to disclose incremental amounts, not just what is published with the insurance regulators, where there are insurance regulators reviewing rates. So I do remember one of those states, Maryland, specifically had the incremental cost as part of the disclosures. So what we thought is that mathematically, if you can require that the lender's title insurance will be disclosed as a lender charge, and that be the regular title insurance rate, that's not going to change whether or not the consumer gets an owner's title policy or not. If you show the discount on the owner's title policy, which we had decided is completely up to the consumer and therefore would not be subject to tolerance at all, that could fluctuate without any implications because there's no tolerance consequences. And because of that, the entire intolerance regime seemed to work and seemed to not be off kilter and be subject to challenge from those who wanted more of a guaranteed approach. So that's where that came from. It came from existing disclosures. With the way title is priced sometimes by regulation, sometimes not, depending on the state, but it was priced without having to be a construct of the tolerances and all of those considerations. And as soon as the Bureau was required to bring all those things together, then some of the older pricing models didn't work as well within the new, to use your words, the new regime. Right. And part of it was that our charge was from the perspective of consumer understanding, consumer protection. So as far as how the disclosures worked, that's how the disclosures worked. It has nothing to do with kind of how rates are set or anything else. It's how it's disclosed to the consumer on the forms promulgated by the federal government. That's kind of where we decided that that would be the best on balance way to handle these types of variables from real estate transactions. It's not because you thought title insurance was a product that shouldn't be in the market anymore? Uh, no. I can't speak for the rest of the Bureau. I can only speak for myself. Without title insurance, then you're going to have many more problems in the market itself, real estate market itself. Mm. Oh, listen, we're fighting that fight elsewhere in D.C. right now. Oh, yes, I've seen the things. And I can remember, I don't know if this will help or hurt you, but uh, I can remember when I used to do real estate law and do closings, both the commercial and residential. And I can remember the number of caveats that we would make sure, paragraphs and paragraphs of caveats we would put in attorney opinion letters that basically said, this is the best we can do, this is the best we got. If it doesn't turn out to be true, I'm sorry. But nope, you're not coming back to us. Everything old is new again. 
this is the way we did everything before there was title insurance. And what do people say? There's not enough assurance for the lender or the owner, and it takes too long. And I didn't want to drag you into this is kind of one of our arguments de jour. But so we're supposed to go back to being slower with less protections for big pieces of money. Again, it's as if 2008 didn't happen, which wasn't a title insurance issue, but it's an example of, hey, things can spin up out of hand. So to fix what we view as a too high a barrier cost of entry for homeownership, we're going to rewind back to when it took longer and and nobody, or there was far less protections. That doesn't seem like progress to me, but that's me. From my perspective, I think it's one of those where it seems like it's saving you money, but only if you think about things in the context of an origination. Once the loan's originated and once the sale is completed, that's it, right? Yeah, you're done. There's no cost to tax liens that are out there for, I'm thinking of another Supreme Court case, somebody who got evicted over 50, you know, or maybe I'm thinking of something in the news where somebody was, was evicted because- Oh, they, it's 15,000. Oh, 15,000. Yeah, it's 15,000. I'm following that one too. It's up in uh, Hennepin County in uh, Minneapolis. And there's a big question about the taking and the yeah, she had the, the tax... The tax lien, the tax the lien tax case lien. where... Mm -hmm. And they sold it for 40 later and pocketed the difference, yeah. That seems a little... Yeah, I'm following that one. I was listening to the oral arguments on that one yesterday. They're very interesting. Both sides of that argument were very interesting. I was geeking out on that a little bit yesterday. <laughs> I'm also thinking of the one where I, I heard somebody was... They instituted a foreclosure on an elderly woman who was short on her condo dues or something for by 50 cents. Oh, it might not be something that title insurance takes care of, but little things like that, you know, might pay a couple hundred bucks now, but you're going to not have those thousands and tens of thousands of dollars of losses to people in the future. Okay. I'm sorry. I said I'd come down off of this soapbox and I didn't mean to drag you up here with me, but I'm wondering, is this going to open a whole debate over the equity of of insurance as a product and who should be encouraged to be covered by insurances. Let's talk PNC and who should be counseled away from it or told that there's an equivalent that isn't an It's a ridiculous conversation really to go down, but I guess we're having it. We're having it. It's all about risk. And that's the thing is that if you've ever actually done a title abstract, you can see the holes, right? I mean, you can see the holes. And without something to back it up, it's not like something that you throw on a computer algorithm and it, mathematically it's proven. It's not the way it works. From your lips to God's ears, not enough people understand that. And so conversely, if we're just giving people attorney opinion letters and you know assuring them that that's as good as what they could have spent a little bit more money on, we get enough of those claims accruing, then it's going to come back to us and they're going to say, well, did you know that this was a problem? Well, yes. Well, what did you do about it? Nothing. They didn't have title insurance. We did the best we could, but we knew what was there and we couldn't insure over it. So, And the lawyer, where's the lawyer? The lawyer's probably long gone or retired. Where's the lawyer? Well, the lawyer put in their clauses that made sure that he wasn't going to be on the hook for something that was not discoverable by due diligence. Yeah, right. Whereas you have companies that are there to shoulder that risk. Now, you can get in debates about that and I can get in debates about that as well, but it's better to have those types of organizations that can absorb those types of losses to smooth out the rough edges so that 
you don't have to worry about something that was done 25 years ago in conveyancing document that all of a sudden when you go to sell right before you retire, you can't. Yeah, I don't understand how shifting a burden onto a consumer is consumer friendly. I really don't. How shifting liability onto them, how shifting risk and exposure onto them is a friendly thing to do to get them into a house. But I'm sure somebody can explain that better to me. I'm honestly, I did not mean to drag you down that rabbit hole. You probably that's probably a lane you'd like to stay out of. It's controversial enough. A lot of the times, it's like, well, who's going to bear this risk? Who's going to take this risk? And if it's always the consumer. Quite frankly, the consumer is not in the position where they can, most consumers, I can sit down and I can go, okay, well, there's this, this risk, there's that risk, there's this, okay, how do I hedge against this possibility? I can do all of that. I don't think most consumers can do that because part of the hedging is like, okay, well, wait a second, I'm dating somebody with a IRS tax lien. Well, I shouldn't go ahead and marry them because then that gets attached to all of my properties too. Those types of things go through my head because I'm unfortunately, that's what my business has been. You've marinated in it. Yeah. But that's not something for too long. <laughs> and so you have to constantly remind yourself that your knowledge is not the knowledge that everybody else has. If everybody else had your knowledge, it would be so much easier. But you have to understand that there are some things that you know that you don't. And there's some things that you don't know that change the calculation as well. Yeah, you have to preach to more than just the choir, right? Yeah, and you have to like have a little bit of the humility to know that people, not everybody makes the same decisions the same way, but they should still be able to make most of the decisions they need to make without being taken advantage of, basically. Well said. We've talked a lot about the payday lending stuff and what's coming through the courts. We've talked a lot about the Bureau itself, but we've kind of brought it up to a high level of how all that works. Rich, as I mentioned earlier, Rich Horn was a guest on recently who we talked a lot about the Townstone case. And after our recording, we saw the appeal on that. So we're watching that. As I try to point industry to where it should be watching, what it should be monitoring, there's not just kind of those questions going on, but there's a larger question. And we've talked on this podcast about Chevron deference a lot. We're going to cover it a lot more. Would you like to tell the folks why they need to be concerned or at least watching about uh, what's going on with the lobstermen off the East Coast? Sounds entirely unrelated to title and settlement. I can't even remember. Is lobstermen or fishermen? or Fishermen, fisher people, fishers. Yes. Yeah. Well, it stems from regulation of fisheries, right? It's one of those classic tragedy of the commons type of economic arguments where you have this great natural resource, but if everybody just goes with their own selfish interests, pretty soon there won't be a fishery to get any fish from. There's an agency that was set up by Congress to basically regulate the fishermen so that that doesn't happen. So there's plenty of fish for people to fish from fish in the ocean from now to the future and continuing on. The issue has come down to they have monitors, basically, that go to the boats and make sure that everything's on the up and up. Nobody's trying to circumvent or skirt around what the requirements are and make sure that everything's there. Well, of course, you have to pay these people to be on the boats to do the monitoring. They're not volunteers. That's right. The agency has decided, because it might be hard to get appropriations from Congress at this point, to put a charge to each person on the boat for the salary 
to pay for the monitor to be on the boat. And what seems to be at issue in that case is that there is a permission or ability that's in the statute for the agency to do that, right? To pass along costs. It's not as kind of fleshed out or anything like that. And so the challenge is that, oh, well, this is controversial. So therefore, is this something for the major questions doctrine? Is this something where where we should now think about throwing out the Chevron deference? Because with Chevron deference, as long as it's authorized and it is logical and directly relates to the statute at issue, then it would pass the Chevron test. I'm simplifying, overly simplifying probably. You're doing great. (laughs) And so there's been some justices who want to throw out the Chevron doctrine. And basically what that means is that instead of an agency going through a process and explaining why and all of that, it's up to the judge to determine whether this is controversial enough or this is something that, yeah, Congress did give the authority, but they didn't explicitly say that this is the way to do it. And this seems to be burdensome and therefore no. And so that seems to be what's at issue there. What that does is I think we've hit on it a little bit or in this podcast, which is, well, wait. So now I can rely on an agency, but somebody else can go and object to it. And if they find a judge that finds it controversial, they'll throw out the rule. So any money I've spent or time or effort I meant I've spent to comply with this, why did I do that? Get ready to spend some more because you're going to have some more changes to go through while you tune up to each different thought process. Yeah. So if anybody's thinking that, oh, well, we won't have to talk to our compliance department, you're going to become part of the compliance department. Everybody's going to be talking about compliance constantly and they'll be debating. Well, you know, well, this case, well, this case was this and it was from this particular group and they found this particular judge. And I don't know, are these facts similar enough? So you're going to get the debates constantly, constantly about who's doing it. What is it? Are they connected? Are they somehow connected? Are are they favored on the court? Are they not favored on the court? And that will become the debates. Yeah. Right. It won't be about arguments about the law and the logic and things like that. It'll be more about, is this controversial enough? Does this have the right plaintiff? Does it have the wrong defendant? What's the definition of is, is all manner of... Chaos could ensue. Well, we're watching that one. And I know all of these things kind of go together and it's all under the larger question of what's the appropriate role for the administrative branch and how does all of this fit together? And, you know, most title and settlement agents, especially and lenders too, are trying to get today, tomorrow and next week's business done in a good, healthy, compliant way that's good for the market and good for the consumers. And everybody wants a good space to play in. That, I think, we've come to understand that about the Bureau, and the Bureau has come to understand that about us. And now it's just kind of down to, okay, what does good and healthy mean? And there's going to be a lot of opinions on that. We're going to have a lot of episodes that cover in and out through all those nuances, I'm sure. But I just really appreciate the way that you have brought to us. You've shed some light for us on why some of the things are the way they are, why they were important. If you go upstream far enough, almost everything makes sense. But if you just start with the outcome, 
a lot of times you can, with a result, you can scratch your head and think, well, they just must not understand what's going on. I think you have done a fantastic job of demonstrating what I came to learn a long time ago about you, which is, you know exactly what the heck you're talking about. You had a job to do and you had requirements to fulfill within that job. Right. And the thing is, is just, I knew some things from my time, but I think what's also important is that you just have to remind yourself that you have to listen to other people and listen what they're saying and try to figure out, wait a second, what am I missing here? There's always something that I'm going to be missing. That little bit of kind of like, well, wait a second, I don't know everything. What is the information here that I'm missing? What implications does that have? And you just have to be open to it. I wish that there was a lot more debate and discussion that was like that instead of what we get a lot right now. Yes. Well, our listeners do a great job of listening. They don't do a lot of yelling. And I appreciate you giving them the chance to listen to you today. I know you've shared some helpful items with them. And so thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. I really appreciated the time. Thanks again, David, for sharing with us your thoughts and impressions, your recollections, and just plain mental horsepower. You've made us wiser, and we do appreciate it. If anyone out there listening thinks you might want to engage David on some of these issues, especially the attorney opinion letter subject, I bet he would welcome your reaching out. We've included his email in today's show notes. So until next time, happy summer, everybody. I hope that your order counts are high and your closing calendar is full. I hope you get outside and enjoy some living too. If you have a vacation scheduled, I hope it's a full throttled frolic. And if you don't have one scheduled, do we need to talk? No, we don't. Just book it so that you can refresh and get back to what you do. Because what you do really matters.